0: afternoon we'll hear the word of the Lord, a doctrine as we confess it in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2, the second Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the first Lord's Day after the introduction, after the first, of, of the first part, which deals with our sin and misery. So let's read Lord's Day 2. Lord's 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question 3 asks, from where do you know your sins and misery? And our answer is, from the law of God. In question 4, what does God's law require of us? And our answer, Christ teaches us in a summary in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In question five, we're asked, can you keep all this perfectly? And we answer, no. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So far, the reading from our confession. May God bless the reading of his word, also of the confession of the church, and also the proclamation of the gospel this evening. One moment. There we go. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Lord's Day 1, the first Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, there are three things that we need to know in order to live and die in the joy of the comfort of belonging to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. and The first thing we need to know is our sin and misery. The second is how we are to be delivered from our sin and misery. And the third is how we are to be thankful to God for our deliverance. And that first part of the catechism, this first part which we're beginning to look at this afternoon, speaks to that first thing we need to know, which is sin and misery. Now, these are not pleasant topics to discuss or to spend time thinking about, but it's vital that we do just that, because we human beings are masters of self-deception. Now, unbelievers are masters of self-deception. Romans 1 verse 21 tells us that. The Apostle Paul writes, "...for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him." but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When it comes to the most important knowledge of all, the knowledge of God, unless we are made alive by God himself, we would continue to deceive ourselves about him. We would know him, yes, but at the same time, we would deny him, deny that knowledge, suppress that truth, deceive ourselves about him, about his existence, and about the demands that he makes on our lives. Now, as God's people, our hearts and our minds have been given understanding. So we no longer live in this self-deceit about these most important aspects of life. But at the same time, we're still good Even as believers, we're still good at deceiving ourselves about certain things in other important ways. Because we still have to deal with that old sinful nature, which isn't completely eradicated, which isn't completely taken away from us, even as we are united to Christ by faith. And two of the ways that we most easily, most clearly deceive ourselves are in the areas of our sin and our misery. And so we need to be reminded of our sin regularly because it's so easy for us to get comfortable with it. Or if not comfortable, at the very least, not take it as seriously as we should and not struggle against it as we should. And that's one of the reasons why we read the law every Sunday. It's very important. And when we arrive at the third part of our catechism, we'll also hear about The law as the rule of thankfulness, which is another important reason why we read the the law every Sunday. But this means that every Sunday in our Sunday worship, we are led back to Jesus Christ, and we are led back to the cross. And in order for us to seek Christ, we need to be motivated to do so. In order for us to want to seek Christ, to desire to seek Christ, we need to have that motivation. Only a correct understanding of sin will lead us to truly seek that Savior. I'm sure some of you are familiar with a man named Ray Comfort. Now, we differ with Mr. Comfort in several important areas theologically. Uh, But one thing that he does well is that he uses the law of God when he's speaking to unbelievers in in his work of evangelism. And so some of you, I'm sure, will know his open, opening line. He says, he walks up to somebody on the street or he's got people gathered around him, and he says, so do you believe that you're a good person? And the unbeliever, generally self-deceived, will give a, a hearty yes to that question. Yet, yeah, of course I believe I'm a good person. Because after all, who doesn't want to believe that he or she is deep down at bottom A good person. When all is said and done, I've never done those really bad things that all of these other people have done. I lead a normal life. Yeah, I think I'm a good person. So Mr. Comfort, after receiving that response, he goes on to ask a series of questions. He asks, have you ever told a lie? Or have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever looked at another person with lust? And then when the person inevitably admits, yes, I have told told a lie and and I have stolen things and yes, I have looked at another person with lust, then Mr. Comfort asks the same question once again that he began with and that is, so, do you still think you're a good person? So the person is led to think, led to examine whether or not he really is a good person or not. And that's important because we live in a society in which the idea, the concept, or the existence of sin has been completely forgotten, largely forgotten, or at best, minimized and marginalized. What happens instead of sin is now many people make mistakes, many people make bad choices, but very few people, it seems, actually sin anymore so to use the law in this way when talking to unbelievers makes perfect sense. And it's a great way to lead towards an introduction of our Savior. Because in order to know Him, we first have to know our sin and misery. So what is sin, really? In another one of the Reformed Confessions, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Defines sin very simply in this way. Sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So a lack of conformity with the law of God or a transgression of the law of God. And there are many words used to describe sin in the Bible. And The first is the Greek word for sin which is hamartia and it can be translated as missing the mark. It's like an archer who's aiming at the target But the arrow goes astray. So that mark is God's perfect standard. And when we miss that mark, it's sin. But there are other words as well. Psalm 18, verse 21. David said, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. And the word wickedly departed here speaks of making yourself guilty, of breaking God's commandments. And by breaking God's commandments, making yourself guilty before him. It also has the idea of of wandering off the path, going astray. Sin as as straying, as being led astray, or turning aside from the right way. Sin is also described in the Bible as rebellion against God. It's described as trespassing, as evil as lawlessness, as a lack of respect for God, as impiety. And so there are a lot of nuances for the words that are used to describe sin in the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A study of these words can help us to understand the seriousness of sin. Sins can be, be deliberate. They're called in the Old Testament sins committed with a high hand. They can be sins of weakness. But regardless of what leads us to sin, regardless of the comparative seriousness of our sins, all sin makes us guilty before the perfectly holy God. And all sin is offensive to Him. Even the smallest of sins, as we think of sins, renders us guilty before Him and worthy of becoming the rightful objects of His punishment, of His wrath. And you can see... In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, that sin goes much deeper than merely outward physical actions. Sin is a matter of the heart. It finds its source in the heart and it's expressed in the heart. And there are sins that are more serious and there are sins that are less serious. It's clearly a more serious offense to be a murderer who literally physically takes the life of another person than to be a murderer in the sense of someone who goes around destroying other people's reputations, the honor of our neighbor. But regardless of what we think personally about the seriousness of a particular sin, speaking an unkind word about our neighbor, gossiping about our neighbor, spreading rumors, or even speaking the truth when it it hurts our neighbor, is every bit as serious as taking a knife and stabbing someone to death. In James 2, verse 10, James says this He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable all of it for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law now all of this makes it very clear that sin is a very serious problem and it's a problem for even the most holy among us it's an offense before God. It makes us guilty before Him. It is rebellion against Him. It stains us. It separates us from God. And it separates us from other people. It separates each of us from each other. Sin causes nothing more than heartache and disaster. And it affects each and every one of us. We can and we do make excuses. We can claim mitigating circumstances. Something else caused me to do it. We can try to explain it away. It wasn't really my fault. But the fact is, each and every one of us, from the youngest person here on up to the oldest, is guilty of sins that make us all worthy of death, according to God's justice system. And from where do we know our sin? We know it from the law of God. In Romans 7... Verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And why is that? It's because covetousness comes to us as naturally as eating and drinking and breathing. Unless we're given sight by God, we won't see, we won't understand covetousness for what it is, really, And God uses his law to show us our sin. And so when we hear, you shall have no other gods before me, we're reminded of the fact that the Lord our God brooks no competition. And we're reminded of the times when we have in fact put other things in front of him in our lives. When we hear, honor your father and your mother, we're reminded of the authorities that God has set over us And of the times when we haven't shown sufficient respect and deference and obedience to our authorities. When we hear, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, we're reminded of what we've done when we've used words to tear our neighbor down instead of building our neighbor up. And we need to be reminded of all of these things. Because it's very easy for us to say, I'm really not all that bad. Knowing, because we're Christians, that we are sinners, but at the same time minimizing the seriousness of our sin. The sinfulness of sin. There was a Puritan author named Ralph Venning who wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. Because it's all too easy for us to to make our own sins out to be something less than what they are. Even while we make more of other people's sins, especially their sins against us, than what they are. We make excuses, we justify ourselves, and we easily make sin out to be something less than what it is. So we hear that law every Sunday. We're reminded of the holiness, the perfection of God. His absolutely perfect standard. And again, we're reminded of our position in relation to Him. And the fact that what we need most of all is a Savior. If we spend some time considering what God calls us to be, just just from the book of Leviticus, it will remind us of our calling. Leviticus 19, verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Leviticus 22, verse 32. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified, made holy, glorified as holy among the people, among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So we are called to be holy as the Lord our God is Holy. And the law reminds us that even though we have been set apart by God, and in this way we have been made holy in terms of being set apart, separate, distinct from the world, we are not and we cannot be holy apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And we will not desire Christ, and we will not desire His righteousness, We will not seek him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. We won't do that unless we are first completely aware of our sin and of the seriousness of our sin. We need Jesus Christ desperately. And so the first thing that we learn from the law of God is the reality of sin and the nature of sin. But there's also another lesson that we learn from the law, and that involves the word misery. Now, According to one online dictionary that I consulted, misery means wretchedness of condition or circumstances, distress or suffering caused by need, privation, or poverty. Privation is a lack of something. Great mental or emotional distress, extreme unhappiness, a cause or source of distress, when we think about misery, what is it that we often think about? What is, what, what is it that the world thinks about? It's often that, that distress or suffering caused by need, privation, or poverty that comes to mind, first of all. Now, some of you may have heard of something called the Misery Index. Now, the Misery Index is an economic indicator. It was created by an economist named Arthur Okun. And what he did was he calculated this misery index adding the unemployment rate to the rate of inflation. And so the misery index is used to calculate the, the level of misery in a nation. It's based on the assumption that a higher rate of unemployment and a worsening condition of inflation create economic and social costs for a country. So the employment is going up, inflation is going up, and misery goes up. Now, in a materialistic society, and when I say materialistic, I'm talking about a society that doesn't take, take account of the spiritual realities of life or supernatural things, but, but only the physical, material world. As well as a society, we can also say a materialistic society can be defined as, as a, a society that's focused on material prosperity and on economics. It's not surprising that misery is calculated and can be calculated using strictly economic factors. But really, what is the worst form of misery? And how does the law show us our misery? And if that misery is so real, shouldn't it be obvious? Why do we have to have that misery revealed to us? If we're actually experiencing misery... We should know it, or not. But the fact is, the worst kind of misery is the misery of sin. Material and physical prosperity are no guarantee against being miserable, against extreme unhappiness, according to the definition, or wretchedness of condition or circumstances, despite what the world would have us believe. Psalm 37, verse 16 tells us, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Proverbs 15, verse 16 tells us, better is a little with a fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. And in Proverbs 16, verse 8, we're told, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Of course, you're never going to understand that if your thinking has been shaped by the opinion makers and the social theorists of the world who imagine that poverty is the cause of all misery and that eradicating poverty will be the solution and the ultimate goal in the society, the creation of heaven on earth, a utopia. That a world without poverty would be a world without misery. But as we heard, David shows us in Psalm 32 what misery really is and the only possible relief that we can find from that real misery. A misery is the result of not confessing your sin before God. When I kept silent, David said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. A lack of confession led to a wasting away of his bones, a physical expression of that misery. A misery is the result of God's heavy hand upon the sinner. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It was God's hand. It was God who was active, actively inflicting this misery. Misery is all-encompassing. It covers every part of life, spiritual, emotional, and physical. And you can see that in the expression that David gives to his misery. The physical effects of it, the spiritual and the emotional effects effects that he speaks about in Psalm 32. And misery is not the result of physical physical problems or material lack. Because David, we know, the king, he lacked nothing in terms of physical, material prosperity and wealth. For David, his misery was entirely 100% the result of his sin. And he became aware of his sin because it was revealed to him when he compared his own life and his own behavior with what God had revealed in his word, in his law. Our misery is separation from God. Our misery is caused by God who uses that misery to draw us nearer to him. And our misery is grief that we have offended God by our sin, that we have damaged our relationship with him. That we have hurt others that we've hurt ourselves and that we've grieved the holy spirit by our sin all of that leads to misery and makes our misery grow now that is what real misery is and that's why we need the law to make our misery clear and we need to have brothers and sisters our misery revealed to us in this way because going back to what i said at the beginning of this message it's so very easy for us to fool ourselves. Our lives can so easily be characterized by self-deception. We see it in the world around us, and unfortunately, all too often, we see it within ourselves. Unconfessed, unforgiven sin leads to misery. But when you're anesthetized against that misery, by the trappings of this world, you might not even realize it. So when we're feeling down, when we're struggling, what do we do? We work to cover that up. We work to drown our sorrows, as they say. We may do that with drugs or alcohol, but you don't have to be a drug addict or an alcoholic to keep your misery hidden even from yourself. You can hide your misery by immersing yourself in any one of the distractions that the world has to offer. Distractions that keep us from truly, completely knowing ourselves, from truly and sincerely reflecting on ourselves, from doing that vital work of self-examination that we need to do. And that's where the law comes in. Why do we need the law to show us our misery? It's because we need God's wisdom We need the work of the Holy Spirit within us so that we can have a real knowledge of ourselves and we can have a real knowledge of God. And we need that knowledge in order to truly understand how much we need Jesus Christ. Because we need to know our sins and misery in order to truly understand the blessings that David spoke about in Psalm 32 the blessing of having our transgression forgiven of having our sin covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. To know that blessing, to know the riches of that blessing and what it means, we need to understand our sin and misery. Now, it may seem easier for us to avoid this whole misery thing and and remain blissfully unaware of it, that there is a problem. We may actually, in thinking about the way that we do evangelism, we may want to avoid this whole sin and misery thing and and preach a positive message. But the thing is, we can't get to the positive message unless we start with the sin and misery. Because unless we know our sins and misery, we will not be saved because we won't see the necessity of salvation in the first place that's the condition that a large part of our world is in. A large part of our nation is in this. A large part of our community is in this position. Not being aware of sin and the need for salvation. And that's why the law is such an important tool in leading people to Christ. But it's not just vital for unbelievers. It's not just vital in our work of mission in our work of evangelism. It's also vital for us personally as members of Christ's church. We need to be reminded again and again and again and again because we have this tendency of being so dull of hearing and of, of turning it off when we, when we hear it again and forgetting. We, have, we become dull of hearing, as the author of Hebrews says, about our need for Christ and our need to continue to seek Him all throughout our lives. And so we don't ignore the law We don't minimize the law. We don't look at the law as being something from the Old Testament that we as New Testament, New Covenant believers don't have to worry about that we know that we're no longer under the law but under grace. The law leads us to Christ. And only if we know Christ, brothers and sisters, can we hear what David says in Psalm 32, verse 11. And can we read those words and confess those words and sing those words with joy. Be glad in the Lord And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Because real joy can only follow real, genuine sorrow. Real sorrow can only come to us when we really know our sin and misery. And knowledge of our sin and misery can only come through the knowledge that God's law gives to us. Amen.